Well, again, I want to thank all of you for being here. We're going to continue our study in the book of Esther. A lot of people have wondered why Esther is even in the Bible because there's no mention of God, no mention of prayers, no mention of anything supernatural or transcendent. There's almost an overwhelming number of coincidences in the book of Esther, but there never any attention paid to them. It's just like they're the normal thing. Oh, I'm sorry, kids, we're having children's church. I always forget that. So head that away back there, and Rick and Marty V will meet you back there. So someone wonders, I mean, why would you have a book in the Bible that has no mention of God and no mention of anything supernatural, never a, never a prayer uh, mentioned? Um, And the only connection in the book of Esther to any other part of the Bible is a brief mention about Esther and her uncle Mordecai being Jews and their enemy, this man who appears later in the narrative, Haman, being an Agagite. And it is incredibly significant that they are mentioned this way, and we'll go into that uh, later on. The only connection to anything in redemptive history is that one little mention of the Jews and Agagites. Also, you can't really use the book of Esther as a moral uh, guide. Uh, There's a lot of moral ambiguity in the book, um, and we'll talk about that. uh, A lot of scholars say that this book is rated R, and it is. There are really nothing you can say about the characters. They tend to be a little bit shifty, both Esther and Mordecai. They do things that are questionably, morally. And so, uh, why is the book there? What's the point? And I think, and I'm not, not alone, this is not my idea, the book of Esther is in our Bible to show us that when God is not present, or seemingly so, when He's absent, when you cannot find Him anywhere, when life is dealing you cards that you don't understand what is going on and you say, where is God? How can this be happening? Uh, he, is, he is, I don't feel him, I don't see him, I don't know what's going on. That you can come to a book like Esther and see through the author's literary genius of leaving God completely out how much he is present. Theologian Karen Job said this, God is most present when it appears he is most absent. The author is suggesting that beneath the surface of even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work that can be neither explained nor thwarted. And so in your life and in my life, when it just doesn't seem God is anywhere to be found, He's just not there, you're to remember and to comfort yourself and drill down in the truth that He is present. This is our Father's world. He is active, and the way He is active is through what we call divine providence, that He is involved in all the events that happen, both large and small, but not as a puppet master, no, not that, but as a God who is in control and manages His things through our decisions, our human agency, our will, and our desires, and our our decisions, and even the decisions of the wicked, that His hand 
although it's invisible, is present. So if you have your scriptures, uh, turn to Esther chapter 1. We're only going to read the first few verses, uh, and then we'll comment, I'll comment on the rest. But in, the, in chapter 1, uh, let's start at the very beginning. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and splendor, glory and majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each person what they wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkas, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. So the king became furious and burned with anger. This is the word of the Lord. So God is most present when he is most absent. I don't know about your life. My life is uh, Christian. I came to Christ, gave my heart to the Lord back in uh, ancient days. I was 18 years old, and uh, I would hear people talk. You know, you get into the church culture, and uh, you hear people say, the Lord led me, or the Lord said to me, or the Lord spoke to me, or the Lord showed me, and I wanted that so bad I couldn't stand it, and I would just look so hard and try to find Him in everything. Pray for a parking space, parking space shows up, it's a miracle. You know, everything's a miracle. Every, God is everywhere. But after a while, after you mature for a while, you realize it's not really quite like that. And then you hit older, perhaps your older age, and all of a sudden there are lots of questions. Where is he? What's going on? I don't hear anything. I know everybody else is, but I'm not hearing it. And so it was a great struggle for me, and, and I appreciate very much reading the book of Esther. It is the most relatable, I think, book in the Bible for the average person. When 
God is nowhere to be found, you can see in Esther that he is there in everything. And the author leaves him out so that you will see him there, present in all of these coincidences, even though they're not mentioned. So we're going to look at two things this morning that I think will really help you. First is the parody of power. The book starts with this amazing description of the power of the Medo-Persian king Xerxes or Hazuerus, depending on what your translation says. He was the son of Darius, the great king. Now there's three kings of Persia that are considered to be three of the greatest kings that ever lived in history. Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes, their son particularly in Persian history. They took the Persian Empire to a place of glory and majesty that very few kingdoms in the world uh, have enjoyed. And so look at your Bible. In the first few verses, you see a world that is bowing at the feet. And literally, folks, this was the entire known world at that time was under the, the lordship, the kingship of one man who had absolute power, Xerxes, from India to Ethiopia. So this was vast. In fact, if you look online, you can find these really cool maps that show you these old kingdoms and how they were arranged. And they were gigantic in scope and size. Their wealth, their armies were unbelievable, technologically advanced. Hundreds of thousands of troops, highly trained. I mean, these are people that could ride on a horse and shoot a bow moving and hit a a target without even a second thought. Amazing warriors, political power, literature, art, everything you can imagine, high, high culture. From Ethiopia to India, 127 provinces. And Xerxes gathers all the officials and governors from all these places and brings them to his palace I'm sure he had a a house a little bigger than mine. I'm sure it wasn't a 2,500-square-foot house. (laughs) And and they have actually excavated Susa. And this this, uh, palace area is on top of a, a hill, and it's just acres and acres of land. And this king had his palace there and could accommodate guests for half a year, feeding them and giving them drink and meetings and all of this, He showed the riches of his royal glory, the pomp of his greatness, 180 days. And Queen Vashti did the same for the women, the noble women of the land. The wealth and power of the Persian Empire was unrivaled at the time. Uh, Its military, culture, art, everything is stunning Alexander the Great, the Greek king who, in, who conquered the, the Persian Empire 100, about 150 years later, when he came to Susa, he was stunned at what he found. The, Greece was a great power, a great country, and they had overthrown the Persian Empire in 330, I think, 330 B.C. And even Alexander was stunned at what he found. Listen to this. 1,200 tons of gold and silver bullion. 270, this is only in Susa, in the the treasury there. 
270 tons of minted gold coins, uncounted jewels, precious stones, and other treasures, a lot of which are on display today in the Louvre in uh, Paris. An amazing time of uh, wealth and riches. Now, when a king would go to war, he had to fund the entire expedition out of his treasury, which was uh, you know, from other conquered lands and taxes and all the other things. And Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us uh, he kept a record of all of this that the Persian kings did and the, Greco, the Greek kings that, that were at war with him. It took Xerxes, Ahasuerus, three years to prepare for war. And he started it the year after he came into power. And Herodotus... This is fascinating. He records this, and, and many scholars believe that this uh, quote from Xerxes to his nobles is at this feast in Esther when he had gathered them because he was getting ready to go in the second campaign into Greece to avenge his father. Now listen, amazing. Here's uh, Herodotus' account of King Xerxes' speech. For this cause I have now summoned you together, that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intention to bridge the Hellespont and lead my army through Europe to Hellas, which is Greece, that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father Darius. I will never rest until I have taken and burnt Athens." As for you, now he's talking to his nobles and his generals and all the rest of them. As for you, this is how you shall best please me. You can hear his, see how I did that? That's how these kings would move when they talk like this. Not that good, huh? Okay. (laughs) As for you, this is how you shall please me. When I declare to you the time for your coming, every one of you must appear and with, as, and with a good will. And whoever comes with his army, best equipped, shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. So both from Scripture, in this magnificent display of his riches and his pomp and majesty, plus from Herodotus in history, this was a majestic king whose word was power and his word was law in fact you read in the text later that the the laws of the persians and the the uh, medes could not be revoked now whether or not that's true we don't know but the idea is that when they spoke that was the end of the story it was so but scripture folks warns the people of god remember when this is happening Israel had been destroyed 200 years before. It lay in in wreckage, as did the rest of the world. So God's temple is burned to the ground by this time. There's nothing left of God's people. They're scattered to the four winds. And yet Scripture constantly and continually warns us against power. Not that we shouldn't have any power, but that we should be suspicious of power. Let me just give you a few. Some of these you'll, you'll know. When Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came against Jerusalem 
at the during the reign of Hezekiah, Hezekiah made a speech and he said this, Sennacherib may have a great army, but they're merely men. We have the Lord our God to help us to fight our battles for us. Then in Psalms, don't count on your war horse to give you victory for all its strength. It cannot save you. When Daniel was in captivity in this same court, in the court of the uh, Persian kings, Daniel said, Praise the name of God forever, for he has given all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and he sets up other kings. So scripture always pushes us back to knowing the truth that God is the one who holds ultimate and absolute power. Now, we live in an age where, I mean, we can just look on our cell phone and you can see unbelievable displays of military power uh, and might. I mean, you can, you can watch uh, live footage of drones that are over this very part of the world and spitting out missiles at, at you know, people down below the enemies and whatever and blowing them up. Or you can look at a... Uh, pictures of these massive aircraft carriers that uh, are at sea. Now, they're not as cool as the ones in uh, uh, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Those aircraft carriers actually can fly much better. So you can see the, the, the enormity of economic power, the fact that we have suffered a year under the pandemic and yet the stock market is at all-time highs. There's lots of unemployment and people have suffered, but you know the economy is still pretty good. It's amazed everyone that it's done as well as it has. There is something about power that is intoxicating, and we want it. I don't know anybody that doesn't want power. When I was a young Christian, and I heard these people praying these prayers and God sending miracles to everybody but me, maybe He just doesn't like me. Maybe I'm Esau, and they are all Jacobs. I don't know. Nevertheless, it tells us that we are to have a specific... Scripture tells us, power, fine, I have all power, but for you and I to be somewhat suspicious of that power, not to become comfortable. Remember, this nation had the greatest military in the world, and... Alexander defeated them with a much smaller army. Much smaller. He was able to obliterate the Persian Empire. So power is relative. And we need to know what Scripture has to say about this second thing, the, our relationship to power. So there's a certain folly to power that the Bible, and I only quoted a few, but there's also a relationship that we should have to power. I want to give it to you this way, and hopefully it'll make some sense. Our relationship to power should be twofold. One is submission. Submission. The other one is defiance. Submission and defiance. How much submission? How much defiance? Uh, what do you think I'm going to say? How much submission to authority? 100%. How much defiance to authority? 100%. Christianity offers us this unique posture 
towards power. That we can actually, as Christians, submit entirely to power and authority. No problem. Whether it's capitalism, communism, dictatorship, monarchy, leftarchy, whatever it is. Doesn't matter. Christianity gives its people the ability to operate in this world like Esther, like Mordecai, like Daniel, like Hezekiah, like King David, with or without power. And that we are able to submit to any power and that God has promised that He will be present with us and that we will thrive. Even if we die, even if the the powers that be execute us, we live. They cannot harm us. We cannot be robbed of life. Real life cannot be taken from us. So our relationship to power, listen to this. You all know this scripture. It was quoted a lot this last year. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. For all authority, all, every kind, comes from God. And those in positions of authority, have been placed there by God. Now, it's, it's very popular in our times, particularly the last two, three hundred years, where representative democracy has reigned in much of the world, large parts of the world, to think that we can somehow invest government to have its power and then we control government. And all of you know that that's uh, not possible. Paul says we are to have submission for all authority because all authority comes from God. And what Paul is saying is all authority, listen to me, all authority comes from God without exception. That means uh, when the Khmer Rouge uh, run Cambodia, God is in control of Khmer Rouge. He's in control of Putin. He's in control of, of uh, our current president, Joe Biden, was in control of Donald Trump, whoever it is. God is in control of every human being in all governments in all the world without exception. And the apostle is telling us, submit yourself to those authorities because they come from God. So he's saying 100% without exception, you can submit. But the other side of this is power and authority is not without distinction. It's without exception. God is in control of all. But it's not without distinction. In other words, as the people of God, whether you're Esther or Mordecai or Chuck uh, uh, or anybody else in this country, any one of you, your relationship to the powers that be, wherever they are and whatever flavor they are, you are to be able to also discern a distinction between just, righteous, good, and bad, evil, wicked. And you are able to take an understanding of that with you as you move out into your life, regardless of what the ruling... um, the, the party or the kind of politics is in your, your country. Some authorities are wicked. Some of them are evil. And this happened in the book of Acts. Listen, Peter and John are brought before the ruling power, the religious authorities of 
the Sanhedrin. And Peter and John say to the rulers, do you think that God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling everything we've seen and heard. Now the council, the Sanhedrin, threatened them even more. And if you continue to read through the book of Acts, you see that they got more and more defiant against the ruling authorities when it impinged on their ability to go and do what was right before God. So how do you know when to submit? How do you know when to um, uh, defy the authorities that are around you? You read a book like Esther. You read your scripture. You look deeply into your Bible. What do you see? You see Daniel submitting and defying. And how he did that. You see the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. You see them submitting remarkably to where they were better than all the other uh, slaves in that particular quarter of the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, they defied. And you can see where Scripture gives us guidelines. When you see injustice, you know what injustice is. You know what righteousness is. You know how they apply to society, to our world, to laws. We all know that when we see things that are unjust, we want them rectified. That's why movies and books, and I mean, we love stories like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We love to see the bad guys getting reversed. We love the Avengers. We, we, we love that kind of thing. We love stories where, the bad, where Mordor is overthrown by King Aragorn. And we like it even better if there's a couple of hobbits involved because they're really tiny and weak. We love that stuff. We love these reversal stories. And you know, your whole Bible, folks, is a reversal story. It's a reversal of what we would expect God to work in power and throw lightning bolts and do all this. And what does he do? He sends a little baby, a human baby, into a manger. He doesn't even, doesn't even put him in the palace in Jerusalem. I mean, at least there he would have been safe. No, he puts him in a, 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 a manger where he's exposed to everything. And lets him grow up weak as a common laborer out in the community with no money, no citizenship, no, nothing in his hands, nothing to combat the powers except his obedience to God. To submit and to defy. It is just remarkable. In our time, we've seen many of these, that the civil rights movement of the 60s and late 50s was a time when the evangelical church in this country stood up strong against racism and took their place in the voice against oppression. Those are things we need to look to as examples. There are other examples that are not as good and they're self-serving. But we know the difference. We've been charged to know the difference. We've been invested with the Holy Spirit of God. And we can look and say, you know, this isn't right. And this is, we can, we can give in to this. What do we care? It's not going to hurt us. In fact, maybe by our submission, we can win over the king like Daniel did. So where do we see the parody? Let's finish it up with this. The parody 
this author is really remarkable as you read and I hope many of you will go home today it only take you 15 minutes to read the entire book of Esther it's very short very brief so if you read the book of Esther you'll see that there's a lot of humor and irony and satire in the book but you kind of have to get into it a little bit to, to see it but there is a parody look down at the the next verses we didn't read these but in 12 through 22 this is the rest of the chapter uh, chapter 1 you see that the author starts to make fun of and mock the king, King Xerxes. And he does it in a, in a very subtle way, and yet it's pretty out there. Look at verse 10 and 12. The king is merry with wine, which means he was drunk. He commands his seven eunuchs. In other words, he, he, with his power, his pomp and authority, he's bossing people around. He sends these eunuchs to go get his wife and have her appear, because she's a beautiful woman, with the royal crown. And uh, people have speculated, well, why did she say no? Well, the reason you said no was because uh, it wasn't because he was asking her to come and parade out there naked. I read one commentary that said, yeah, he wanted her to. That is just reading something into the text that's not there. But in history, these royal people were considered to be mediators between the uh, divine and the human. And so to set eyes on them meant that you were somebody. So they kept themselves cloistered to add to their power, to their mystique. And only worthy people could set eyes on them. Only worthy people could come into their presence. And so for him to want to parade his wife out in public in front of all these nobles and even the other population of the, cap of the city, Susa, would have been uh, a, a real slight to Queen Vashti. So she refuses, and the king uh, becomes enraged, anger. In other words, he's uncontrolled. The words are actually means he's out of his mind with anger. <laughs> he's so mad. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Have any of you seen that movie? That, that's my family, by the way. The only difference is that my, my grandfather would go around, instead of with a bottle of Windex, he had a can of WD-40. And so everything got sprayed. If you said, gosh, I, my, my uh, elbow hurts, he'd spray it on there and start rubbing it in like it was going to loosen up your, your joints. And, and don't, don't ever tell him that you had a headache because he'd come and start you know, spraying <laughs> WD-40 on your head. In that movie, it's really funny because they're talking about how to, you know, the mother's talking to the daughter and the mom says to the daughter, man may be the head of the woman, but the woman is the neck that turns the head. And so right away you see this author is starting to go in deep because this is his culture, right? Where women are just, uh, you know, they're there to serve us, they're subservient, they're less than. And right away she refuses. And so there's satire and mockery coming. And here it is. Look at 13 through 22. The king said to the wise men, in other words, this is a husband who doesn't know what to do with his rebellious wife. What do I do? I don't know what to do. How am I going to control my wife? She better come when I tell her, but she's not coming. What am I going to do? And he's like this, he's like this little shrieky little thing, the most powerful man in the world, 
but he is being controlled by his wife, which in that culture, unbelievable, bad. And so he says to these wise men, he goes, he has to go to the wisest men to find out what do I do about my rebellious wife. What, according to the law, what do we do? And then his chief advisor, Mimukin, says, not only, you can hear the mockery in the author, it's really funny, not only against the king, but also against all us officials and all of the people of the providence and everybody, everyone, everywhere is being affected by this terrible action of the queen. All the women of the, of the country are going to hear and they're going to say the same thing. And, and uh, if the queen doesn't obey, then we don't obey either. And so you can hear the, the, the mockery. And, the, and then in verse 18, look, this very day, this is the speech, of Memukin, this wise man. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media will say the same thing to all the king's servants, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. In other words, the advisors to the king, the seven wise advisors, are all they're all terrified and befuddled by one woman. She won't come. You can almost hear them shrieking and, and whining and wringing their hands. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do about this woman? So they come up with this great plan, a royal order that Vashti never comes before the king. This is in verse 19 again. They're going to depose her, in other words. And they're going to go look for a woman better than Vashti. And there's a lot of humor in that because as you read the story, you find out the better woman is Esther, who submits, she submits to the authority in ways that will embarrass you and cause your cheeks to flush. And yet, she defies them in ways that save her countrymen. It's it's phenomenal. Uh, Dr. Joyce Baldwin said this in her comment. I have the common, best commentaries I'm finding are by women theologians, and they are really good. So Dr. Baldwin says this, For us who live in a different age, it would be easy to miss the subtle irony and humor obvious to the original readers. There are several ironical nuances, but most obvious is the contrast between the king at the beginning of the chapter when he is the world's greatest monarch, rich, powerful, aloof, yet generous. And that same king at the end of the chapter attempting to maintain his dignity despite the defiance of his wife. This great lawmaker of the Persians and Medes whose law could not be altered was prepared to pass an edict framed in a moment of irritation and resentment from a slight to his pride when He was not even sober. So the humor is there, if you can see it. God is working in subtle, imperceivable ways to bring deliverance to his people. And what we're going to look at over the next few weeks is the reality that you, you, you can live your life, I can live my life in complete assurance, faith, and trust that everything that is happening is for our good and His glory. That there's, no, there's nothing that is going to pass through God's uh, hand 
that is out of his control. Now, that raises a lot of questions because of evil and whatnot, uh, and I'm happy to talk about those with you after, if you'd like. Esther becomes queen. How does she become queen? Through complete powerlessness on her part. She doesn't try out for queen. She gets pulled out of her culture and into, out of her family, out of everything. She's a nobody from nowhere. And she gets pulled up and put into this position. And that is normal, folks, in redemptive history. You know, there's only a few places in your Bible, very few, five different occasions where there is miraculous power that's evident for everyone to see. And the rest of redemptive history, 1,500 years, very little. Hardly any at all. In fact, there's none in many places. The entire history of David the king, never a miracle. It's really amazing how God works. So how does God rescue uh, the Jewish people in the book of Esther? Well, he does it through Esther's risking of her life. She risks her life, and you'll see that in chapter 4, to intercede for her people and to save them with the king because she becomes queen in place of Vashti. Well, how does God rescue us? Well, I'm, I'm going to suggest, and I hope you'll think about this, because I, I truly believe that this will help you uh, navigate our modern times when there's pressure from the outside on us to accrue as much wealth and power and strength so that we can oppose the, the evil forces that are out there, get as much earthly power as we can, that there's, there's a danger in that, and there's also freedom to do that if, if God so chooses. So how does God rescue you and I? The way He does it is through both weakness and power. Listen to this and we'll finish. Peter gave his sermon on the day of Pentecost. People of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as for you, as you know yourselves, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. You killed him. But God raised him up, freeing him from the agony of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In that one brief scripture, you see two things, folks, for the Christian, for you and I, that absolute first, Jesus is from Nazareth. That was the worst place, the weakest place, the most disreputable place that he could have been from. Weakness, abject weakness. Yet, he came out of that weakness and went into, into the, the world of Ju the Jews, the Judaic world, and performed miracles that no one had ever seen. Raising from the dead, casting out devils, lame, blind, deaf, unbelievable power, display walking on water, you name it. Weakness, hey, he was arrested, betrayed by his own friends. According to the foreknowledge of God, my goodness, even God knew this was going to happen and foreordained it to happen. 
You crucified and killed. Nothing weaker than that. There's nothing you can imagine that is weaker than having your body stripped of all clothing and being nailed up, sprawled out on a cross for all to see. Not for a little while, but till you die. And yet, juxtaposed right next to it, God raised him up, freeing him from the agony of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is what should characterize us, folks, us as Christians. Profound weakness and unbelievable power. Lack, and yet we're full. We can live in the tension of both because he controls life and death. I don't know what motivated Esther and uh, Mordecai because it doesn't say what was their motivation. Was it love? Was it, was it God's spirit? What was it? We don't know. There's nothing there to indicate. But for us, we know what it is. We can look at our Savior, what he did for us to give us true power so that we could live in a world that is just fluctuating back and forth between these poles and live a steady life. So when we're sick, we're okay. When we're well, we're okay. When we have money, we're good. When we don't have money, we're okay. When our children are in the hospital, our children go off the rails, or our marriage dissolves, or our jobs go away, we're going to go look for another job. We're going to get our kids out of the hospital. We're going to go find our children that have gone. But we are going to be okay. We can have faith that God is working. He's not absent, but He's present. So, will you trust Him? I sure hope that we all will. Let's pray. Father, uh, thanks for this day, uh, one in seven, and thank you for the truth that you are always with us, that you will never leave and forsake us. No matter how rough things get, uh, you promise to be present. And uh, through your divine providence, all things will work together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose. And there are lots of things we don't understand about that, Lord, but we are confident that you are with us. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.